0: Amen. Let's go up for John. Thank you, John, for reading the passage today. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? This is—I set this up if I was seven feet tall. Let's see if we can pull that down a little bit. Um, Good to be uh, with you all this week. If we haven't met, I'm Kenny, uh, one of the pastors here. Hope to hopefully meet you today. Glad you're here with us. Um, I haven't been here in a couple weeks. Uh, Because last week, my wife Hannah and I celebrated our first wedding anniversary. And, uh, which was awesome. We had fun. We went to the Grand Canyon and um, we went camping. And I was telling uh, someone earlier that it was 28 degrees. And, uh, you know, there's no better way to say I love you than uh, camping in 28 degree weather. With a with a flimsy tent, um, but no. Anyways, I'm glad to be back with you all, and um, I'm talking today as John read from the book of John, some of Jesus' words, and what I want to look at is how you respond when you're rejected for believing in Jesus or for following Jesus. Sorry, I don't want to kick that over. Um, so we're, we've been in a series called Counterculture, um, and we've been going through what are the different ways that the church and that Christians are called to interact with the culture around us. And part of the interaction that Christians have with culture and with the world is something that Jesus warned about here, which is being hated or rejected or persecuted by the world. You know, in I was I was blessed with the opportunity to go to Indonesia. Uh, two summers ago, and I went with a group of pastors, and our, our main goal was to meet brothers and sisters in Christ who have undergone persecution and yet are still living for Jesus and still sharing the gospel. And I got to interview um, several several people from a lot of different walks and hear all kinds of crazy stories. Like, I even met a guy who, they burned his house, his family's house, to the ground because he believed in Jesus. The village persecuted him to that level, and he left. And then eventually he felt like God was calling him to come back to the same village, and he did. And then God just brought revival. All sorts of people started believing in Jesus and coming to faith. And it was very eye-opening to the fact that around the world, other believers, our brothers and sisters of Christ, are going through persecution and are literally hated and under the threat of physical harm because of their belief in Jesus and because they are following Jesus. And here in the US, we don't really face that. Thank God. It's not a, it's not a good thing in general to, that we should want persecution. And today, by talking about rejection from the world, I don't want to play into what some people call a persecution complex that American Christians have. Like, oh, I'm being persecuted. They changed the Starbucks cup. Like, that they hate Jesus, right? I don't want to play into that, but I do want to talk about that. We, we, we don't face that same level of persecution, but we still face different forms of rejection for our faith, for following Jesus. We still, in certain circles, more than others, lose social points for staying true to the gospel, right? It's not whether or not we'll face rejection when we follow Jesus. It's The question is, how will we as Christians respond to the world around us when we're rejected or hated for following Jesus? And in the passage that John read, we're gonna look into, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's warning them about the rejection that they are gonna face from the world. And he's instructing them how even though they're going to face it, even though they're going to be hated, his words, how they can have hope and joy in the midst of that peace even i told you this so you'll have peace and as we dig into that i want to begin with um just a uh a little confession all right is that okay okay so yesterday i was uh sitting in my chair and i picked a bible up off the uh off my bookshelf that I haven't looked at in a while. It's a Bible that my dad had given to me when I was in high school sometime. And I saw in the front of the page that his parents had given it to him in like 1973. And I was kind of, oh, this is kind of cool. And I was just going to read, it's a King James and I don't read King James very much, but I was going to read the text for today and that. So I'm flipping through and uh, I turned to the back and there's this paper that falls out. I'm like, okay, what is this? I open it up. It's, it's, Bible, it's a notes from a Bible study that I prepared when I was in when I was in high school, when I was about 16. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what's this, what's this going to be? I wasn't, I wasn't a preacher then, but someone had asked me, hey, speak to the youth group, talk on something. And so I'm like, okay, I get to see what 16 year old me thinks about stuff. And uh, I'm getting, you know, it's two pages already, like too long, right? And um, I get to this passage and I'm, I'm exhorting my youth group, we need to not be ashamed. We need to not be ashamed of the gospel. That was like the title of this. And so I'm like, okay, this will be interesting. This kind of fits into tomorrow. Let's see what's here, right? And then I shared an example of a time that I had been ashamed. And, and here's what it was. it was. It was me driving to school at about 16 and bumping Christian music in the car and just like getting into it you know because I just loved Christian music right and just to give a few details this is me driving to school in a 1988 blue Ford Escort with automatic seat belts that like (laughs) go on when you turn the car on you know I I called it Buford it was a hand-me-down of a hand-me-down it was my sister's first car and then my brother's first car and then it was my first car and that's what I'm in, so I should already be ashamed of that, right? Rolling in the high school parking lot. But then I've got Christian music, and it's probably gospel choir music at that point, right? So not exactly like top 40 stuff, right? Maybe Kirk Franklin-ish, maybe John P. Key, maybe Hezekiah Walker, I don't know. I was just jamming out, right? And I roll into the parking lot, and this is my story of being ashamed. I see a popular kid walk by in the parking lot. I just turn the radio down. And quit dancing. And as I read that yesterday, I was like, why was I ashamed of that? Like, that's kind of ridiculous in the first place. First, I was in a small school. Everyone already knew I was a Christian. <laughs> this is like, you're not going to be shocked. Secondly, I was in the Bible Belt, <laughs> Arkansas. No one's like, oh man, Kenny listens to Christian music. So I read that yesterday. I'm like, man, that shouldn't have been a big deal. But when it came down to this, even in that little story, that I was afraid of being rejected because of my relationship with Jesus. I was afraid of losing social points, or at least my relationship with Jesus' music, right? Jesus or Jesus' music. But I was afraid of that. And I think that happens a lot more than maybe we even confess or think about or are aware of as Christians. And so the reason I think that we do that is because obviously there's a pain that comes with rejection. Does anyone just like to be rejected in general? just like to go through life? Like, I. everyone hate me, please. Feels good when you hate No, right? There's a pain that comes from rejection, but there's also a fear of that. So if we can avoid it, we often try to. Am I right? Is, is this tracking? All right, cool. Well, Jesus says we should expect it. Jesus says if we're gonna follow him, we should not only expect it, but he shows us how to face it, and then he gives us a hope that will outlast and be greater than any persecution that we could ever face on this earth, whether it's turning down your radio in the parking lot or whether it's your house getting burned down. The message that Jesus has can speak to both of us and the whole range in between. So let's look at that passage, shall we? It's good? All right, so the passage that we read from today, it's kind of an excerpt from a, a, a big monologue four chapters or so of Jesus talking to his disciples. It's in the, the setting is the last supper, right? So he, he knows that he's about to be crucified. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. And in John 13, a couple chapters before, um, he washed their feet and he says something interesting. I'm your teacher and look at the lesson I'm showing you. I'm your master. I'm a teacher, you're the student. I'm the master, you're the servant. And look at how I've treated you. I've washed your feet. I've served you. I've taken on the, the, the lowest form of a servant. You should do the same thing. So he's setting them an example in John 13. Here we are, two chapters later, Judas Iscariot has left the room. So Jesus was talking to 12 disciples. Now he's talking to 11 disciples, from what we read today. Judas Iscariot is in the act of betraying Jesus as Jesus is uttering the words that we read today. Right? He's already left. He's already turning Jesus in to the officials that want to see him die. And in the midst of that whole scenario, Jesus says what John read earlier. If this world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you no servant is greater than his master so he's quoting himself from two chapters earlier where he said i served you now you serve one another and now he says remember what i said no servant is greater than his master then he says this if they persecuted me they will also persecute you if they obey my teaching they will obey yours also they will treat you this way why because you're a jerk no hopefully not They would treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus is setting the expectation for his disciples. You're going to be persecuted. He's saying, remember what I said, the servant is not greater than his master? I'm gonna get this treatment. Do you expect to get better treatment than me? If I'm showing you how to live, if I'm showing what's gonna happen, do you expect to get more love than I am. The reason I bring that up is sometimes we're surprised, and here in the U.S., in Americans, Christians, American church, we're surprised at the thought of being rejected for our faith. Because we've lived in a society that's so infiltrated with it and so affected by the Christian faith. We're surprised that someone might reject us for our faith. But Jesus is setting expectations and making clear that rejection will be part of following him. But he doesn't end there. Jesus gives hope. He says, I'm telling you these things in chapter 16 so that you might have peace. You will have trouble in the world, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then in chapter 17, he's praying to the Father and he's saying, I've said these things out loud so that they can hear it so that, why? They can be depressed? No, so they can be full of my joy. They can have the fullness of my joy within them. They're not of this world any more than I am of this world. He sets expectations for them, but he also makes some declarations of truth over them. You can have peace and hope in the midst of being rejected and hated and suffering. I have overcome the world, and you are not of this world. One of it is about what he's done and the other of it is about who we are. So what does it look like when we're surprised by rejection from the world? When we don't have the expectations that Jesus gives us? And I think it shows up uh, in a few ways and and hopefully um, this is something that we can relate to and, and you can relate to in your everyday life. Not, not something that's just going on um, elsewhere. But I I want to explore some of the pitfalls of not expecting to to be rejected by the world for our faith. Does that make sense? Okay, and so I want to look at that by looking at the disciples and what they did. So Jesus gives them this warning. He gives them this heads up. Hey, I showed you how to serve. Now you do it. Hey, I'm about to be persecuted. Now you be persecuted, right? But I'm going to show you how to do it in a way that, you can have faith and hope and joy even in the middle of it. So after chapter 17, where we read that prayer, chapter 18 is they leave. They've been in the Last Supper. He's just poured into them, told them that he's gonna send the Spirit. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And what happens next? We know the story. Who shows up? Judas, right? Judas shows up with the Pharisees and the police, and they have come to arrest Jesus. Jesus, Judas betrays him with a kiss. And there's a few ways. This is, all right, so this is the onset of the persecution that Jesus just warned, right? You see this? I'm going to do this. They're going to do this to you also, right? It begins. And what happens? Well, the first thing is Peter grabs a sword and cuts off a dude's ear. All right, so. I'm going to go into this story a little bit. If you don't believe me, just read John later. If I'm off, just like send me an email or call me, or we can actually talk about it. And, and, uh, but Peter cuts off a guy's ear. So with the first sign of rejection by the world, what does Peter do? He fights back. He's like, well, that's not cool. Right? He takes off, he takes off a servant of the high priest, takes off his ear. His name is Malchus. And the reason the Bible gives us his name is because this was written by eyewitnesses. So basically, they're they're tagging him. They're saying, hey, go ask him. If you don't believe his ear got cut off, go ask him, right? So his ear got cut off, and what does Jesus do? He heals him, puts his ear back on, heals him, and says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Peter, that was the wrong response to rejection by the world. Right? So... But, but, but that's the first one, right? Fighting, fighting back, retaliating, right? Peter cuts off an ear. Second one, what happens? When they arrest Jesus and he says, well, you're looking for me. You, you can let these other guys go. You're looking for me, right? And they're like, yeah, we want you. So they arrest him. And then the other disciples like hang out and be like, oh, what's, what's going to happen? No, they scatter. They get out of there. They hide. They go run off. Why? Because they're afraid. They're legitimately afraid of what will happen to them for being associated with Jesus. If these people find me and they're doing this to him, what are they going to do to me? They disappear. They scatter. So that's the second one. And a third one, you look at Peter. As the story goes forward, um, Peter and and the other disciple, presumably John, they follow Jesus to where they're beginning to have a trial for for Jesus. And they're in the outer court and they're trying to warm themselves with a fire. And then a servant girl who lives there says to Peter, hey, hey, you, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And Peter's like, why, yes, I am. No, no. He's like, no, no, not me. And then a little bit later, someone's like, no, 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 you talk just like Jesus. You have the same accent. And he's like, no, I don't have accent. <laughs> right? I mean, I made that, up. that's embellished. That's not in John 18. All right. <clears throat> that's not even in my notes. I don't know. All right. But then the third time they approach him, and what does he do? He denies again. Right. And what is he trying to do? He's, and he, he even curses the third time, which I'm not going to do. <laughs> I'm not going to go off the notes and curse. But he, he is trying to blend in with the other people. He's like, no, I don't know I'm No, I never, no, no, that's not me. No, I'm just like y'all. I'm here to find out what's going on. No, I'm not the rock that the church is going to be built on. No, no, listen. <laughs> and all, while this is happening, while they fight, while they scatter, while they deny, the whole time Jesus is beginning to experience the hatred and persecution he had just warned them about. And then as you follow the story, what's, what's going on in the grand story? He's beaten, he's mocked, he put on a crown of thorns. He's judged wrongfully. He's crucified. And you look at the disciples under the threat of rejection. They fight, they scatter, and they deny. Now, Here's the thing. We may not be living in this critical scenario, in this moment that's recorded in scripture, but we can still learn about ourselves and we still face the threat of rejection by the world. And I think we still have similar reactions, if we're really honest with ourselves, with the other forms of rejection that we face in our culture. I think there's a a few things about the Christian faith that are just inherently going to lead to conflict with our culture, and I could list a ton of them. Pardon me. I could list a ton of them. That's not what I'm here to do, but let me just list a few ideas that are within the Christian worldview that, that fly in the face of the world's value system. One of them is that objective truth exists. That, that there is a truth that is true for everyone. In our culture, we've kinda gone beyond that. I don't know if you guys know, it's more popular, hey, everyone's gotta find their own truth. Everyone's gotta find their own meaning for life. Everyone's gotta find their own thing that fulfills them. And it's very popular in our culture to seek truth. But it's not popular at all to find it. So once you find it, uh, well, yeah, well, that's true for you, but not for me. That's good. I'm glad you found it. But that's not true, like for everyone. Which oddly, that they're claiming a truth over everyone, right? Our culture does that. Our culture does. That. We even do that in a lot of ways. But that's one of the things that's going to fly. In the, that's part of Christianity. That's going to fly in the face of the world. That there is a truth. That there is a God. That He loves you that sin is real, that he died for your sin so you could be saved and that you need him to be saved. Another one is that right and wrong exists objectively, inherently, on its own and we don't get to determine it for ourselves. Oh, get quiet. Got quiet. Hey, but this one goes back to the first three chapters of the Bible. You ever heard of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is that about? Does God get to tell me what's right and wrong? Or do I get to know what's right and wrong for myself? Right? And it still goes on today. And, and, and the way that shows up in our culture right now is there There was a time in, in American culture where there was a lot more of a shared kind of value system of morality, like what's good, what's right, what's what's, what's good for family what's good for individuals what does it mean to be a good person a good citizen well that's kind of gone because we're all finding it ourselves and so the new thing is we need to be tolerant of everyone's different code of morality that they have right so tolerance is the new morality but the problem with that is our culture is the most intolerant towards people who have a defined morality the culture says, oh, yeah, you have to just tolerate everyone. But if you actually say, well, this is right and wrong, and I think God has made us in his image, and I think this is good for everyone, then, whoo, you're about to get hated. You're about to get hated. It sounds like a hashtag. or <laughs> Hashtag about to get hated. About to get hated on. Whew, all right, we made it through that part. All right, good, huh. So there's a million others of those. But if we don't have the expectation that Jesus gives us that, hey, you're going to face rejection from the world, not everyone in the world's going to like you. Not everyone's going to reject you, but not everyone's going to like you. And some are going to be flat out mean. If we don't have that expectation or we don't have the hope that he gives us, then we'll respond the same way the disciples did. I'm talking tomorrow. I'm talking, we'll be singing in here, shout it, go on and scream it from the mountains. Right, someone brings up Jesus tomorrow at work, you're like, hmm? <laughs> Man, there's like a lot of toes I'm like stepping on right here. <laughs> no, if we don't have that same expectation and we, we don't have the same hope, then we'll respond the same way as the disciples did. We'll fight. We'll retaliate. What does that look like? Every discussion about our faith, we turn it into an argument. (laughs) Or we'll just get flat out mean, ugly, self righteous. We'll talk down to people who don't believe in Jesus and don't believe in what we think is right and wrong. We turn it into us versus them. And, uh, you know, Jesus said we'll be hated because of his name and because we're not of this world. He didn't say, you should be okay with being hated if you're just a jerk, right? If you're a jerk and you're hated, like that, you kind of earned that, right? Jesus is not excusing it. Some of us say, "Well, yeah, I'm just gonna be, I'm just gonna face persecution, standing up defending the faith," right? Maybe you need to put your sword back. Maybe instead of fighting, you need to bring healing to that conversation, right? Secondly, we'll be tempted to scatter. What does that look like? The first hint of conflict, the first whiff of I might be rejected, the water cooler conversation at work that all of a sudden turns to religion or turns to a hot button issue. And they know you're a Christian and maybe everyone else in the circle is just freely sharing what they think. But you're like, I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to sit this one out. (laughs) Right? I don't want the big conflict that comes when I tell them what I think the Bible really says or the classic you're reading the Bible at the coffee shop and you also have your journal and you do the classic cover the Bible with the journal move (laughs) so that you don't get a random person who comes up and like oh so you're a Christian Uh, what do you think of all the killings in Deuteronomy Uh, you serve that God and you're like oh dude I didn't ask for this we're just trying to read Ephesians. <laughs> hey, it sounds like you guys have felt that. Yeah. I mean, I'm just giving examples of me here. I'm just not saying they're me, but it sounds like they're resonating. No, just... Or maybe it's you're having a, a talk with someone and they're not a Christian, and you know it, but they're bearing their heart with you and it's, and it's troubles. And, and if, it was a, if it was a fellow Christian you would know, hey, I don't have the answer, but can I pray for you? Can I lift this up to God for you? But in that moment, you're like, I don't, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna withhold that. Hey, um, well, here's what I would do, right? Or maybe it's the third one. Maybe it's denying, like Peter, trying to blend in with the others around the fire. And what this looks like is knowing the truth of God that's gonna bring conflict with the world, but bending that truth in our conversations bending that truth of the gospel that leads to conflict so that the world will be more likely to accept us. This is a dangerous place to be as a Christian. All of these are dangerous, but this one I think more so than the others because, look, if your views, we we talk about this a lot, but if your views on, on money, sex, and power do not contrast with the world's prevailing views on money, sex, and power I urge you to look at the words of Jesus where he says, if you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Have you been called out as a Christian but are bending the truths you know that don't taste good to society around you so that they'll be more likely to accept you? To avoid the conflict. Are you fighting? Are you scattering? Are you denying? And here's the thing. All of us, Have done one of those or all of those. A lot. Or all of those simultaneously. Right? When faced with the fear of rejection, we're all guilty along with the disciples and what they do in John 18. Why? I think where we go wrong is we want to be loved by the same world that hated Jesus. We want to be loved by the same world that hated Jesus. And when we do that, we're not living in the joy and the peace. We're not offering joy and peace to those others who don't yet know Jesus. We're not having a message of hope to offer others if we're not standing up for that hope in ourselves in the face of rejection so if we're there if you're guilty like I am what can we do what can we do let's look at uh, Jesus declaration over his disciples because I think um, when we look at how he lived it out and how it changed his disciples we're going to see how it can change our lives. So, what does he declare? First off, he says, "I'm telling this. I'm telling this to you so that you can have peace." Um, the first thoughts are, "Really? Like really? I, it's not very peaceful. Um, not looking forward to that. I don't have warm fuzzies about the rejection, right? But, but together in the same." In the same phrase, he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. That's the first thing that he declares. Secondly, the second declaration he makes over his disciples that gives us hope and peace and joy, despite whatever suffering we find, is that he says, you are not of this world. I have chosen you and called you out. I am saving you from sin. I am putting hope and new life within you so that you can share that with other people. You are not of this world any more than I am of this world, he says. So, how does Jesus live it out? We touched on it earlier. When his disciples fought, he didn't fight, he healed, he brought healing. When his disciples scattered, he didn't scatter. He stayed present in the middle of the suffering that he knew was coming. And when his disciples denied him, he did not deny the truth. He testified to the truth, to Pilate, to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to all the other seas. He testified to the truth. He suffered persecution. Why? Was it for doing wrong? no do you ever think about that he didn't he didn't do anything wrong he only did good he only did good and suffered for it I've done a lot of not good and yet there's still part of me that is surprised to have any rejection related to my faith he never did wrong He suffered for only doing good all the time, but he died on the cross not for his own sins. It was for our sin. The persecution that he went through, not only was he modeling to us, this is how you suffer, and this is how you go through it with hope, he was also taking on our sin in every way that we failed to suffer well. Every time that we fought instead of bringing healing. Is that tracking? Every time that we've scattered and disappeared instead of being present and being a witness and a testimony. Every time that we've denied the truth of the gospel so that we could be liked, he took that on the cross. And it didn't end there. He showed us, he showed us by suffering this way that there can't be resurrection without a death. But oh, when resurrection comes. When resurrection comes, it makes everything that you went through before that worth it. Everything. The example he gives that I didn't read today is in John 16. And he says, it's like childbirth, right? There's a lot of pain involved in childbirth. It's, oh, we got an amen over here. I know we could get some amens on that, right? Right? He says, there's a lot of pain. It's overwhelming pain. But when the baby is born and you're holding that baby and it's looking at you, the joy is overwhelming. Hallelujah. You got an amen corner right here. <laughs> no, but the joy is overwhelming and it continues to be worth it. I mean, moms, wouldn't you say it's still worth it, right? Still, I know my, I can confidently say my mom would still say it was worth it that she had me. And I was an 11-pound baby right? But 31 years later, I'm the gift that keeps on giving, right? I'm just saying, she, she would still say that it was worth it, right? Well, Jesus is saying, you're going to go through persecution. I'm going, I'm going to die, but what's on the other end is so much more worth it. It's worth everything that I'm going through. And in the same way, no servant is greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. But guess what? It's going to be worth it. It's going to be overwhelming joy and hope. Every single bit. Because why? Because I didn't just die and stay there. I've overcome the world. All the world had to throw at me was evil and sin and rejection. And rejecting me and saying, you're not God. And we're going to kill you because you said you're the son of God. That's all the world threw at him. And yet he overcame that with good. Amen? He overcame that with good. You will have trouble in this world, but take heart. There's no getting around the trouble. There's no getting around the childbirth. They didn't have drugs back then, right? (laughs) Right? There's no getting around it, but the joy on the other side is worth it a million times full. In the kingdom of God, in the Christian faith, resurrection, life, and glory is always on the other side of suffering and persecution. Look at what it did to the disciples. Their behavior is one of the great apologetics of the Christian faith. It's one of the ways that we explain to people that Jesus' resurrection was historical fact. Because look, they went from fighting back, scattering and disappearing, and denying They were cowards. But when they met the resurrected Lord and when they saw he has overcome death, he has overcome the grave, and we are his. He says that we're not of this world. We belong to him. They went from being cowards to being ambassadors of the gospel. They preached it no matter if they were persecuted or not. They went to the ends of the earth and most of them died for their faith. Peter was crucified upside down. Another disciple was boiled alive. You don't do that if you don't believe the message that you're preaching. And they went from being absolute cowards who, I don't know him, get away, I'm running, I'm going over to the safe house, to I will preach this until you kill me because it's true and you need to hear it. And the life that Jesus has given me, he will give to you if you cry out to him. They preached it. With boldness, because they knew that Jesus had overcome the world and that they were not of this world. That's what Jesus wants to do for us. That's what Jesus has done for us, but that's what he wants us to know, that he has overcome the world and that when you face rejection for following him, no matter how small or how big, that you can have peace in your heart because he has overcome the world and because you belong to him. And that when, they're, when you're tempted to retaliate and fight, you can instead put your sword up and bring healing to that conversation. When you're tempted to, oh, I don't want to deal with this, turn down the radio, cover up the Bible, go silent in the conversation. When you're tempted to do that, you can be present in that moment. You can say, you know what? This hope is true and other people need to know about this hope even if they don't like me in the moment. I can humbly be here. I can humbly be here and be a testimony to the truth. And when you're tempted to say, ah, that's not going to sound good to the people around me. and I know that Jesus said this and I know that the Bible says this, but let's uh, water it down, let's change it up a little bit so people will accept it more. You can instead of denying, you can testify to the truth. Jesus is not only our model, and I'm wrapping up. He's not only our model for dealing with persecution. He's not only showing us how to deal with it. But he's actually taken every time that we failed at it on the cross. He's making the way that we can follow Him out of His grace, not of how good we are and how how great we are and how courageous and fearless. So I think if we're honest, we've all had moments of cowardice. But for every time we've been defeated by the world, Jesus has overcome the world by His love. For that. So that the Spirit can empower us to obey. On the other side of every suffering that you will go to for the name of Jesus, that you will go through for the name of Jesus, is glory and joy. It's glory and joy. And only when we see that he has overcome the world, that he has overcome evil with good, and he's even overcome our failure through the cross, And when we see that he is calling a people to himself, that he is saving us from the sin that leaves us hopeless and in despair and broken. And he has said, you're not of this world any more than I am of this world. And he says, go share this with everyone. All that are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. I want people to be saved. I'm not willing that anyone should be perished. Let people know my love. When we know that he's overcome the world and that we are not of this world, we're, we belong to him, then we can have hope and joy and then we can be faithful. Then we can ask the spirit, I want to fight, help me to heal. I'm scared, I want to run, help me to be here. It's uncomfortable, Lord. And he will give us hope and joy in the process. Amen? Amen? All right, I'm gonna quit talking. Um, let's pray and I want to give some instructions and and then we'll be done, All right, Father we thank you so much for this time together I thank you for these words um, that that when we read them I think at at first it can be so easy to just write it off or say wow Jesus says the word hate I thought he was all good and all about love and, and yet he's telling us we're going to be hated and, and, and we can just have that knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, this is, this is weird, this is heavy stuff, I don't know about this. But Lord, I thank you for the wisdom in your word. I thank you that it speaks to, uh, to all people. Lord, that, that it, it cuts into our hearts. Lord, that you cut in deeper than, than I could with any of the words I said today. Lord, it's not about me or my words or about this message. It's about you and your word. It's about your truth. The kingdom of God is not words, but power, Lord. And, and you have given, you have showed your power on the cross and that you are no longer in the tomb. And you have given that power to us, God. You have said, no matter, we're going to face trouble, but no matter what, you have overcome the world. Lord, that we are not of the world any more than you are of the world. And then you ended that by saying, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, God, I pray that today we would respond to that word. I pray that, that in this room, God, if, if there's people that are just convicted right now by the spirit of, oh my goodness, I've been expecting the world to love me, but Jesus said they weren't going to. God, I pray for repentance. I pray that we would repent of expecting better treatment than you, God. I pray that we would turn from that. I, I pray that we would turn from wanting the love of the world more than the love of the Father. God, I've been been cowardly. I've been ashamed. I don't want to do that. I want to be present. I don't want to scatter. God, I don't want to deny. I want to testify to your truth humbly because of how good you are. I pray that you would bring that into this church, into this assembly, Lord. We can't do it on our own. And the message is not that we can do it on our own. It's that you have overcome the world and that you've called us your own. And you will give us the power as we as we reach out to you. So I pray that you would empower this church. I pray for the next few moments, God, as we respond in communion and in prayer and in singing. pray that you would be glorified. pray that hearts would be changed. And I pray that whatever we face as a church here at New City, God, we would face it with peace because you've overcome the world and joy because you've said that we're not of this world any more than you are. And you've sent us out to declare that to other people. whosoever will come to you in faith. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.